This podcast is brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Jimmy Webb, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. This podcast is full of music and storytelling from America's songwriter. He's written songs like MacArthur Park, Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Up, Up and Away, Galveston, and hundreds more. It is a real pleasure to say from Melbourne, Australia to New York City, hello and welcome to Jimmy Webb. Hello, Gammon. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to talk to you because uh, being a DJ from 1973, I've played all your songs. Well, I know that you have. I know that you're a you know, an expert. Your reputation precedes you. <laughs> That's very nice of you. And so does yours, of course. So thank you for giving me your valuable time. Let's go right back. Now, where were you born, Jimmy? I was born in Elk City, Oklahoma, on uh, what we call the Mother Road, Route 66, in a corner of southwestern corner of Oklahoma. I was born 12 miles from Eric, Oklahoma, which is where Robert, Roger Miller was born. Toby Keith was also born in Beckham County, Oklahoma, so it's kind of a, a musical spot and a very agrarian, you know, country folk, small town atmosphere. Right. Now, growing up in a small town, of course, uh, I, I suppose I'm a little similar to you. I went to church. I was an altar boy and a choir boy, and I understand your father was uh, heavily involved in the church. My father was a Southern Baptist minister, so he was the top man in our house and at the church house. It was quite an experience. He was an ex-Marine, so I was really growing up with a hybrid Marine Baptist preacher for a father which had its rough moments, but it wasn't all bad. The church supplied a bottomless fountain, really, uh, of inspiration. And my first, the first music I played was church music, and I became a church pianist because of my mother. And the church was really the start of it all. Did you take to the piano easily as a young child? I don't know any little boy six years old who wants to play the piano. I really don't. I... I wanted to do what all the other little boys were doing, um, but she was very strict about it. She'd take the ch- kitchen timer, out, uh, a little chicken, you know, and she'd like wind the thing up and stick it on top of the piano, and and she'd say, okay, now I want to hear that piano play for an hour, or I'm going to hit you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh and when I was 12 years old, I became church pianist. That was my first big career move. Do you now wake up every morning and thank your mother and father for having that devotion in starting you out so early? Well, my mother, I do. I definitely do. My father, he was, when I took up songwriting, you know, age 12, age 13, and started listening to Elvis Presley and, and writing rock and roll songs and stuff, he was dismayed, uh, to say the least, and he told me that I should stop messing around with that music, that it was just going to break my heart. And uh, that was his attitude, I think, until I was making a lot more money than he was. Ah, yes. Now, when he dropped you off in L.A. and he gave you his last dollars, he obviously believed in you. Well, he gave me, I think it, that's, that was a desperation move. He wanted me badly to get in that car and go back to Oklahoma with him. Mm. And this is in the aftermath of my my mother's passing. So we're all, you know, profoundly disturbed and emotionally wound up. 
and uh, I, I think I think he almost cried that day. I never really saw him do that, but I, I think I saw a couple of tears. He gave me the forty bucks, and he said, uh, "Well, he said exactly, son. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life." Turned around, got in this old station wagon, and drove off east. And I I was seventeen years old and standing in San Bernardino on a corner with. Forty dollars in my pocket, and didn't have a soul in the world to turn to. Oh, so, um, but it was what I wanted, and I quickly affirmed to, to anyone who asked me uh, if they asked me what I did, I'd say I was a, a professional songwriter. Now, Jimmy, uh, writing songs at an early age, you got all your song information, obviously, from you know the Elvis songs and everything like that. Was it hard for you in the early days to actually, you know, to get a song that you really, really liked, or did you like them all from the get-go? No, no, I, I, I didn't. From the very beginning, I had an idea of which ones I thought were promising and ones which, you know, might be better left behind. Sometimes I thought, I would have a good idea. I'll, I'll tell you how I did it. Uh, in the old days, as you will remember, of radio and single records, after an artist had a hit, there'd be a, a recess of a few months, perhaps, and then there would be another record, very much like the first one, and mm-hmm. called a follow-up. We called a follow-up here. I don't know what you called it down under. So the follow-up would come out, and I, in the, in the meantime, I would have written my own follow-up for myself at home. For instance, Chuck Jackson came out with the follow-up to any day now, you know. I would compare my follow-up to their follow-up, them, the record company. Okay. And sometimes I would think, well, theirs is better. And then I, I, it would just make me want to work harder. And I reached the point somewhere around senior level in high school where I thought that my songs were beginning to compare favorably with a lot of follow-ups. And I thought, well, maybe I just might have a knack for this. I didn't know. I, I had no idea. You know, I, I could have. I was prepared to fall on my face and, and crawl back home and say, Dad, I was wrong. Tobin Brothers believe every life is unique. Every funeral should be too. Visit turbanbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Jimmy Webb. And you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. I'm speaking with the legendary Jimmy Webb. Now, Jimmy, writing a song for you, does the music come first or the lyrics? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think that some people might be able to answer it, but not me, because I've done it every way you can do it, as a as the girl said in Las Vegas. But um, <laughs> some, sometimes the uh, the music comes first. You know, it's an idea that I, I noodle around on the piano and then I go, well, I got to get some words to this, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I was driving down to Newport Beach from Los Angeles, California, in my old VW. And I kept this, this tune kept going through my mind like da, 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 da. And so I started putting words to it. This time we almost made the pieces fit, oh, didn't no. we? I started putting the words to it. And I didn't have a pen, and I was very busy with the traffic, and so I just kept doing it over and over again. And I would add a line, and then I must say, I mean, you know, my gray matter was in a lot better shape in those days. But I, you know, by the time I got down there, I had, by golly, you know, I had the whole song, you know, and I went rushing into this friend's house where my fraternity brothers used to hang out down there. 
And I rushed into this house and passed all of them. They were all saying, oh, Jimmy, I pushed them all aside, sat down at the piano, and I played Didn't We? Just the way you hear it, just the way you hear it on uh, Mr. Sinatra's record or Richard Harris' record. Just exactly like that. And I just played it from beginning to end. That's never happened since. You know, I rolled out of bed at the Inn on the Park one night in London and wrote a song called Highwayman because I was having a dream about being chased by dragoons, you know, and I thought I was going to be hung at any second. So I woke up sweated through, you know, like it was a terrifying dream. And I had a piano, I mean, right there. And I just rolled over and wrote Highwayman and it turned out to be one of my you know, most successful things, eventually. Well, not only have you written songs from the American and the World Songbook, like MacArthur Park, Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Up, Up and Away, Galveston and hundreds more, but you've also recorded 14 original albums, 22 collaborative albums, and seven compilation albums as well. You know, you've been a little bit busy over the years. You know... I don't feel like I have been, you know, I feel, sometimes I feel very guilty and I go, what have you done with this life that <laughs> you've been given? But I tried my hand at everything. I've, I've scored motion pictures. I've been a musical director for television shows. I've tried to be an artist, not too successfully, but uh, there was a certain point in history when I think one had to be a singer-songwriter. If you weren't singing your own songs, then nobody else was singing them. In a way, it was something, I think when I heard Carole King's Tapestry, I thought, well, I've got to make a record. And I know that a lot of writers who didn't make records, they were sort of left behind. So I'm very, very glad that I pursued a singing career and I and I got to sing with some incredible people. I did a duet with Carly Simon. I did a duet with one of the Supremes. And I've duetted with David Crosby and Graham Nash and Linda Ronstadt. And, you know, I know some people don't believe in name dropping, but I drop names all over the place, you know. Well, Jimmy, you can. You can. You are a gold star in name dropping <laughs> because it's real. Now, now, tell me about the Laurel Canyon days. Well, I was in Laurel Canyon, though I don't think that anybody knew I was there because when they did the documentary, I guess my invitation was lost in the mail. I was living in Laurel Canyon at the same time Joni and and the whole crew were there. And it's just that I was very, I was living very quietly. I lived down towards the bottom of the road. I would go to the country store and and get my gear for, you know, for breakfast and what have you. I had a little white house with a little a little fireplace and one huge piano which I had purchased with the profits or the forthcomings from um, Up, Up, and Away. I had made, oh, I don't know, ten or 15000 mm-hmm. And I, I spent virtually all of it on a, a Yamaha concert grant, a nine-foot concert grant. And my living room was just about big enough for a nine-foot concert grant. And I used to sleep under it. I had like a host of pillows and things underneath and a throw or two, and I could just snuggle up there. You know, the weather's good in California. Yeah. So, I mean, I slept under my piano for a while, and I don't think I've ever been happier. That was a a kind of bliss. I wrote some more songs, and the next thing I knew, you know, there was, you know, a significant amount of money. To my immense surprise, you know, Sammy Kahn, who used to be president of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, he said, it's a miracle, you know. (laughs) When this money starts coming in, you don't know where it's coming from. 
And isn't that funny? You mentioned Sammy Khan. You're now the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Con- well, I was. I, I, now, I, I, I hasten to sort of say that I was, and proudly so, for five years. But uh, I, I've, I've sort of moved. I've moved on. I am still an enthusiastic supporter. In fact, I was there last year. I had a lovely night. My friend uh, Paul Williams received the Johnny Mercer Award, which was oh so richly deserved. If you think about. Paul's contributions to the world of lyrics. Mm-hmm. Someday we'll find the rainbow connection. You know, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy and, and an old friend, a very dear friend. So I was there for that. And uh, I'm, I'm still active, but not, I'm not hands-on. Right. I, however, I'm very active at ASCAP. I've been there for 24 years now. And I've also been sober for 24 years, so I've managed to, I think, be a pretty good board member, and my only goal has been to make the world a safer place for songwriters, Mm -hmm. and it's not a very safe place for songwriters, sadly. Well, it's a safer place for screenwriters now. We've just got to get the actors, and then then we've got to get the songwriters (laughs) on board. Yeah, well, they they were an inspiration to us. You know, every the AI is on every you know every 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 set of lips, but um, the thing is, we we need to to learn to live with AI. We don't want to be uh, confrontational and mm-hmm. and condemn a technology. Uh, ASCAP survived jukeboxes. We survived peer-to-peer networks. We survived Spotify and Pandora, and we're still getting paid. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not as much as we want, but, uh, you know, uh, and songwriters in Australia are being paid and British songwriters are being paid because of their PROs. The, the thing is, will these organizations survive in this really hostile atmosphere? That remains to be seen. That's kind of up to us. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing with a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. I tour a lot. I have gotten better at performing as I've gotten older, and my voice is holding up. And the folks come out. You know, they come out. It's it's very gratifying to walk out there and sing. Now, I grant you, there's a lot of silver hair. And, you know, <laughs> that's your audience. That's your audience. <laughs> there's a lot of silver hair bobbing out there. But you know, I don't know what to do about that. I'm 77, and for some. Strange reason, I don't seem to be getting any younger. So, yeah. Well, Jimmy, Jimmy, I'm a few years behind you, but uh, you're talking about touring, and you've toured Australia, and I've, I've seen a lot of your footage, uh, you talking about all your great songs that you've written. And uh, Thursday, December 7th, you'll be at Melbourne Recital Centre, which is a great room, you'll love that. And then on Sunday, the 10th of December, at the Sydney City Recital Hall. Only two shows, and, uh, and they'll be sought-after tickets. Tickets are on sale through uh, davidroywilliams.com. Now, uh, Jimmy, the vast number of songs that you have written, do you have a number of how many songs you've written? Uh, You know, I I, I actually don't. Uh, I know that when Glenn passed, sadly, and I say, you know, um, I must say that it was a tremendous loss to everybody, Mm -hmm. to everyone. But when Glenn passed, there was sort of accounting made in that department, and the family informed me that Glenn had recorded 90 songs that there were, uh, now, you know, those aren't all out there, but he, the, the 
tapes are there. I mean, he recorded 90 songs. Now, how many I've written, you know, I, I, I would start, I think I would start by multiplying it by five and say, there's got to be 500, I think. You know, counting songs is, I don't know, it's counterproductive. You should be writing a song. It's an interesting thing to ponder. I would say it's probably over 500 individual songs. And I'll tell you for free, like, you know, nine out of 10 of them are not that great. It's a, it's a, it's a small percentage. Any writer who can write a hit for every hundred songs, he's, he's, he's a good writer. Any song can be played at a funeral. What would you like? Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Jimmy Webb, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's podcast. Now, Jimmy, I'd like to talk about one of your songs, which is near and dear to me, and there's only two men in the world that can sing it, and that's Richard Harris and Glenn Campbell, and it goes for 7 minutes 21, and it was the DJ's toilet song. <laughs> well, I've heard of that, and I've heard of a lot of other things being done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't want to get into that, Jimmy. <laughs> now tell me, I've, I've, I lived in LA for a while and I've been past MacArthur Park. Every time I drive past it, I think of you and I think of Richard Harris. Please tell me what was your inspiration for that song? Well, I spell it out in my memoir, which is which is called The Cake and the Rain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's no great mystery around it, even though I mean I'm delighted that there is a mystery around it because it's 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 given it a long life and. And I'm grateful for that. But it was written in an era when when lyrics were, you know, deliberately obscure and metaphoric and mm -hmm. and meteoric and 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 nuts and crazy. You know, like the uh, I always say, I, I I'm still worried about the the 13 Vestal Virgins. You know, did they make it to the coast? You know, I, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> there was a lot of that sort of writing going on. And so I just felt that I was in the spirit, you know, of the moment when I put this cake out in the rain. I have to say that, first of all, but the static I got, and static is not the word, but the static that I got has lasted my whole life. There are people who love it. There are people who don't care for it. But I was tasked by Bones Howe, who was producing the association, which is one of my favorite groups. Mm. That's my kind of thing. I'm, I'm a Steely Dan fan. Oh. I was an association yeah. fan. Yeah. So um, he tasked me with, with writing a large piece for radio. Now, there's no way that this could possibly work out in the real world. So, I mean, let's just, you know, <laughs> let's just be real for a minute. But he said, uh, and I want it to have cra classical influences. He said, I want it, I want it to have movements you know, and uh, I thought, well, you know, this is a, I'm an old Franny and Tysher fan, you know, watch out, yeah. you know, cut me loose. And uh, so I wrote MacArthur Park for the association in about three or four days and took it over and played it for them. And all they wanted was a, a last cut for their album. So they didn't record it, even though I will tell you that that for free, that this is a true story, that Bones Howe told them when they turned it down, he said, when MacArthur Park goes to number one, he said, I'm resigning as your producer. And that story came true. 
He believed in it so much. Well, well, okay, well, how did you get Richard Harris to the project? Uh, Richard, uh, I met in L.A. Uh, my boss, uh, Johnny Rivers, yeah. who was extremely famous at the time and successful, he said, sent me out to play at this uh, benefit. It was a peace benefit. It was really an anti-war evening. And he said, I want you to go over and just play piano for... You know, Walter Pigeon is going to sing Going Home, a Civil War ballad, and he needs a piano player, and just do whatever. The director's name, Richard Harris. You know, Richard Harris. Oh, uh, Camelot. Richard Harris? Uh, yeah, that Richard Harris. Oh, okay. So I went over there, played the piano. I met Edward G. Robinson. I met Walter Pigeon. I met Mia Farrow, who became a very close friend, and, I, and just a friend. But we were very close for a while. And uh, Richard was a wild man. I mean, when I walked into the theater, he was dressed like a caveman. He was swinging from, on a rope from one platform to the next. <laughs> he was acting out the violence that the cavemen used to do. Anyway, after the performance, he said, Now, Jimmy Bradley, he said, we'll go have a drink. So I went out with him, and I was an amateur drinker. But he quickly made turned me into a professional, <laughs> <laughs> and we used to we used to drink after the rehearsals. We drink black velvets, which for those for those who might not know what that is, that's half champagne and half Guinness. Toss two of those back and see if you could stand up straight. So it was during one of these debaucheries after the show. And that I had my arms armor over his shoulders, and I said, "Richard, we ought to make a record." And he said, "Ah, oh, Jimmy Webb, you're right. We'll make a record. That we would, and I'll be a pop star." And he laughed, and I laughed, and he went off to London. And about two or three weeks later, I get a telegram from him saying, "Dear Jimmy Webb, come to London, make a record, love Richard." Uh-huh. And there were tickets. There were tickets. There were first class tickets. So I flew over. And we had another party that lasted a couple of months. And um, <laughs> while we were doing this drinking and chasing, we made this record as a kind of a hobby. Now, when he picked MacArthur Park, you, you, you could have knocked me over with a feather because it was the very last song I played for him. It was a desperation move, and I, I sort of played it. And he said, oh, Jimmy Webb, I'll take that. He slammed his big fist down on the piano in his apartment. Then on, he he was the motivating factor behind it. He wanted to do that song. I thought, that song's never going to be a hit. I doubt if we'll ever, anybody will ever even play that, but we'll, we'll cut it. Went back to L.A., cut it, cut the tracks with the wrecking crew, Hal Blaine, mm-hmm. Joe Osborne, Larry Nectel, the crew, the, the, the best guys in the world. They got it in one take. The whole seven minutes, 21 seconds, they, they got it in one take. And we went back, we got other takes, but we ended up using the first take. And I took, I overdubbed orchestra on that, and I was up to my neck in writing for orchestra. That's all I thought about when I was that age. And uh, so I wrote, I wrote this orchestra accompaniment, took it back to London, started overdubbing him in a little studio on what was the, it was called Lansdowne Road and it was Lansdowne Studio and people say it 
it was never there and it didn't exist, that it's all in my mind, but I know it was there. And um, we would go to the studio, we would get in Richard's Phantom 5 with a, with a picture of Pim's, and we'd go to the recording studio, and he would start singing and drinking out of this Pim's picture. And when the picture was empty, this, the session was over. And uh, I was able to put together, I think, some some beautiful takes of him singing. I still like to, I, I still love to hear him. I love his kind of Shakespearean magic and the sort of gravitas that he brought to the whole thing mm. and uh so really that's 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 the behind the scenes story it was just a lark really and uh we were making the album for fun i thought that's why we were doing it we didn't release MacArthur park it was it was broken by underground radio in the u.s mm. it was uh fm disc jockeys who were playing the long version of uh Light My Fire, The Doors had a long version of that. Dylan, Bob Dylan had a long version of All Along the Watchtowers. They were playing those records. And they were looking, and maybe they just, you know, wanted to go home and feed the cat, man. I don't know. <laughs> the FM disc jockeys, of which I was one, we wanted to hear the music. We wanted to hear all the music. It, those were good days. Yeah. And, and, and what a coming together, uh, two magnificent entities, the music and Richard Harris. It just makes for an absolute brilliant song to this day. And the, and, and the clip is up on YouTube and also uh, Glenn Campbell doing MacArthur Park, both of which are astounding, just brilliant. Uh, I, I watch it probably once a week. I, I love it that much. Well, thank you so much. I, I mean, that's a lot once a week. But Glenn, uh, thanks for, for mentioning Glenn's. Glenn used to uh, close his show in Vegas with that, and uh, it, with a huge orchestra, and it was his opportunity to sort of unlimber his guitar and show people that he was what he could do with the guitar. So he loved that. He loved the ending. And he could hit all those notes without even without even squinching up his eyes, you know? Yeah, that's right. Well, well, the Wrecking Crew being important to you back then in the 60s, I'm, I'm sure you had a similar band of musos in Nashville, but uh, Louis Sheldon from the Wrecking Crew lives here on the Gold Coast in Australia, and he, he did all the Seals and Crofts and uh, Last Train to Clarksville intro. and Yes, all, all yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm very well aware of him. I, I, I'm, I don't. I don't know that. Strangely enough, I'm not sure we've ever met, but I, I'm very aware of, of what he's done. Y- your first book, uh, Tune Smith, is out. Also, uh, you have another autobiography, the the Cake and the Rain, which is also out. You're coming out to tour here in Australia, and uh, you will be here uh, Thursday, December 7th at the Melbourne Recital Centre, and also Sunday the 10th of December at the uh, Sydney Recital Centre. Jimmy Webb, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Listen, I hope I get a chance to uh, see you, to, to meet you. I will certainly make that happen. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Jimmy. I loved every minute of it. Okay, we'll do it again. All the best, Jimmy. All right, all the best. Thank you. This podcast brought to you thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year.